0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for slash donate. Hey there community, Ayana here, and I wanted to share a few updates before we open up to our conversation with Leah Penniman. First, if you're down in the LA area on April 21st, join us for our Dear Earth event. We'll be screening When Old Growth Ends, our short experimental film about old growth logging in the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska. And we'll also be recording a podcast live with Jade Begay from Indigenous Rising on public land protection and what it means to stand for land that isn't one's ancestral birthright. The location of the event is pretty spectacular. It's the right Ranch overlooking Mama Pacific, so bring your picnic or there'll be delicious nourishment there as well. Get your tickets at ConsciousCityGuide.com. Also, this podcast is community-supported, so consider making a donation at ForTheWild.world. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter to receive a discount code for our brand new online education platform launching May 1st. If you're a musician and you want to be showcased on the podcast, submit your music on our site. And one last thing, rate us on iTunes if you haven't already. Everyone's support really helps us spread these messages. Now on to the show. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort of your own Always alone Wishing for something the world is denying Out in the wilderness somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell Wishing to help, someone was listening, someone who cared, never
1: despair. someone to lean on and someone to trust, who needs
0: your assistance. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Leah Peniman. Leah is an educator, farmer, writer, and food justice activist from Soul Fire Farm in Grafton, New York. She is committed to dismantling racism and injustice in our food system, reconnecting marginalized communities to land, and upholding our responsibility to steward the land that nourishes us. Leah coordinates a subsidized farm share program that provides life-giving food for families in food-apartheid neighborhoods. She also runs training programs for aspiring Black and Latinx activist farmers, uprooting racism trainings for intersectional activists, and international solidarity projects with farmers in Haiti and Puerto Rico. Leah holds an MA in Science Education and BA in Environmental Science and International Development. From Clark University. She has been farming since 1996 and teaching since 2002. Leah's work as a farmer and educator has been recognized by the Soros Racial Justice Fellowship, Fulbright Program, Presidential Award for Science Teaching, NYS Health Emerging Innovator Awards, Andrew Goodman Foundation, among others. Leah's passion is to joyfully and reverently connect community to the intricate miracle that is this living planet and to their own power as agents of positive change in the community. Well, Leah, what astonishing work you do and life you lead. It is such a gift to have you on the show with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here getting to share a little bit of our story with y'all.
0: Well, I want to begin by honoring the immense agricultural heritage of Africa and the resilient, courageous people who's held on to their beloved African seeds and spirits despite all that worked to exploit and disfigure them. And it's a largely obscured story that, quote, American agriculture, both traditional and regenerative, actually stemmed from the co-optation and exploitation of ancient African agriculture. I've heard you tell of how you flow from a long ancestral line of African earth tenders, and I want to ask you if you'd be willing to share with us how your ancestry guides you in your expansive life, work, and in the world, and also how your ancestry guides you specifically in the regenerative farming practices you are rearing at Soulfire.
1: Oh, I so appreciate that question because I would be remiss not to honor ancestors before sharing, you know, the story of my current life and current work. And uh, in particular, I want to call in my grandma's grandma's grandma, uh, whose enslaved name is Susie Boyd, and she was one of 12 million African people who were kidnapped from the shores of West Africa um, and brought to the quote unquote new worlds to work without pay on the agricultural fields of the West. And what she and other women did before boarding transatlantic slave ships was to braid seeds into their hair. They braided okra and rice and millet and other heritage crops that they had bred over generations and perfected because they believed against odds in a future on soil. And I call that in for many reasons, probably foremost in my mind with what we're up against right now in the current political climate is that You know, sometimes despair sets in and sometimes it's easy to think about giving up or imagining that we won't win. And I have to remember that if Susie Boyd and the others around her had faith and believed in us and didn't give up up on us, the future generations, then sort of who are we to then give up on our children? Um, Because they certainly faced conditions that are unimaginable for me in my relatively privileged life compared to what my ancestors had to deal with. And that is just one small piece of the legacy. You know, I think we're often fed the myth that organic agriculture, permaculture is like a white people thing. And I certainly believed that and really struggled with that in my early years of farming. Um, And truth be told, I mean, everything from pick your own and the CSA, which were gifted to us by ancestor Booker T. Whatley to the idea of rotating through um, leguminous cover crops instead of having a monoculture, which was very much promoted by George Washington Carver. So the co-ops and pig banks of Fannie Lou Hamer, the rice cultivation techniques of enslaved Africans in the Carolinas. I mean, these are really our people's heritage. The raised beds and the fallow period and the rotation of animals and crops, all of these techniques that we use at Soulfire, you know, come out of the Black Indigenous. Tradition. And it's been really a privilege over the past year to start to write these things down. I'm working on a book that will come out in November called Farming While Black. That's about these Afro Indigenous ways of knowing and being on land and how we can uplift them and enact them in our farms today.
0: I'm so grateful that you are bringing these untold stories of these heroes to the forefront because as we know, The history that we've been fed and put into our history books and in our education systems tell a very narrow-minded story of the past. Mm -hmm. And that just perpetuates this system of oppression and lies. So this work that you're doing with your book that I want to speak about later feels so mandatory for us to actually move forward in a regenerative way that a lot of us want to. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, of course. And and you know, you'd you'd mentioned Soulfire Farm and your work in general. It confronts food apartheid and injustice in the food system from so many angles. I'd like to steer the conversation towards who has access to the lands of Turtle Island today? As in the words of Malcolm X quote, land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom justice, and equality, end quote. And I've come across quite a few articles that either you have authored or that reference you bringing visibility to the dispossession of Black landowners in the past century. And I want to make the audience aware of a few statistics. Almost 100% of the land in the U.S. is owned by white people. In 1920, 14% of all land-owning U.S. farmers were Black, Today, black farmers operate less than 1% of the nation's farms, amounting to a loss of over 14 million acres. Black farmers receive 50% less government support in terms of loans, conservation programs, subsidies for crop production and disaster insurance, etc. So would you speak about this great dispossession and the violent discrimination and legal trickery that enabled this to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have such a heaviness in my heart. You know, hearing the the statistics come out of your mouth that I'm usually saying, you know, just this past weekend, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, with 100 Black farmers, mostly elders, mostly folks over 70, who were instrumental in suing the US government in the famous Pigford v. Glickman case, which was settled in 1999, in the largest civil rights settlement in the history of the United States for these decades of discrimination. And this court case in many ways was symbolic because the small payouts that the farmers got were too little too late. As you noted, we've already been dispossessed of our land and you know, a $50,000 check does not get you back your hundreds of acres and, and the whole life that you've built. But still was some vindication nonetheless that this is true, that, that the USDA was the principal driver of Black people off of our land. And this was not a historical accident. The South very much relied on sharecropping and tenant farming to maintain a quasi-slavery-like economy. And when Black farmers started to gain land holdings by saving their Sunday money that they had earned on the side and, and amassed this land, it was seen as a threat to white supremacy. And so the USDA is the arm of the USDA and local communities are what's what's called these FSA county committees. And local farmers are elected onto the committees and they're the ones who decide who gets what. And so white supremacists filled those committees. Black people did not sit on the committees and they systematically denied aid to black farmers. But even more than that, they would actively steal land. I mean, go in and burn down people's houses, lynch people, threaten them. Over 4,000 people were lynched in the early 1900s up to the up to the mid 1900s and driven off of their land and and that land was taken. So it's not a historical accident. You know, sometimes we think of the Great Migration as just this northward seeking of of new opportunity in the factories and so on. But there was also a, a push factor. People were fleeing terrorism and violence in the south, which is why they left. It's devastating. I mean, the farmers that I was sitting with at the table just this past weekend have been dedicating their entire life to this fight and are aging out and need to pass the mantle to this next generation are really looking to us as to whether we're going to be able to rectify this egregious, egregious act of land theft. You know, and obviously I'm not saying this in any way to minimize the original land theft of Turtle Island from indigenous people. Um, And a lot of folks say, well, how do you, you know, how do we sort of hold both of these things? And if, when you look at the fact that 98% of the land right now is controlled by white people, there's a lot of room for land reform before we have to think about communities of color being in conflict with each other over that land. And I think we can, we can work together, inspired very much by what's happening in South Africa, where they're just deciding it's time. This land was stolen and it needs to be given back. and, And that will be Perhaps a disruptive, but also a, a healing process for the nation.
0: I wonder what the U.S. can learn from South Africa in this time, and other areas that are doing this work, are doing this work of reparations, and you know. And also, I want to mention what we can learn from what you're doing, because from what I gather, you and your incredible co-conspirators have created an interactive map to catalyze people-to-people reparations for Black Indigenous farmers. So I'd love if you could first explain the concept of reparations and then expand upon how the grassroots reparations project and map you're working on came to be.
1: So the concept of reparations is a little bit different or really quite different from philanthropy or charity, which comes From the idea that folks with privilege, power, resources um, have the right to own those resources and can choose to give them away as an act of benevolence from their hearts, uh, for which they're usually rewarded with social status or tax deductions or or so on and so forth. The idea with reparations is rooted in a framework that the wealth, the, the resources, the privilege that people have, by and large, is not come upon honestly. If you look at the research out of the Pew Center, you know, 80% of wealth is inherited, and most of it is traceable back to times of enslavement and land theft. Really sitting with that fact and asking ourselves, you know, those of us in the community who do have wealth, like how much of that either was inherited directly, or in some way, our parents or community or family subsidized our life, or that we received sort of unearned access to jobs, education. And through that framework, that resource becomes something that is due, due back to the descendants of those from whom it was stolen. And what's really beautiful about this moment in time is that there's a lot of people born into privilege who are recognizing that reparations are due. And while we must, must, must continue to organize for the government to institute large-scale reparations, this is not to excuse that, in the meantime, there are individuals in resource generation and other uh, collectives who are excited to get involved and just do it, just do that reparations work. I also want to say that ours is certainly not the only reparations project. This is a tiny initiative and the National Black Food and Justice Alliance is working on a comprehensive initiative and and also the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and some of the black farming organizations are thinking about that. So I don't want to take away from that, but I will say that We were chatting at our favorite program that we do, which is the Black Latinx Farmers Immersion. And one of the participants named Viviana Moreno said, you know, we should really get a list together of all the things we need to realize our farm food and land dreams, whether it's land, training, money, connections, advice, whatever it is and put that out there and just see if the community is willing to meet us and engage with us. And so we did it because we're action folks, Uh, put together this map on a really simple Google Maps platform, started with 40 farmers, it's growing slowly. And what's really beautiful is that, you know, three of the people who have been in in relationship with Soulfire have fully funded or fully received their ask for farms. And so if you look at Harmony Farm, in New York, Wildseed Community Farm in New York, and the Harriet Tubman Freedom Farm in North Carolina. These are all Soul Fire fam who've received land and or money from white folks. And then a lot of people have received smaller donations. And I've heard a buzz about people trying to pool their money to do some of the bigger asks. And so that's really exciting, because there is an urgency right now. For us to get back on the land. And this is a way that people can engage in the moment um, and and see tangible results immediately.
0: I love hearing these seeds, these dream seeds can blossom. We just need to do it. And I'd love to hear any other celebratory stories that come to mind um, so that we can, as an audience, begin to really understand how grassroots movements can have a domino effect and keep growing
1: word yeah I appreciate the domino effect metaphor because we've definitely received some pressure not from within our community mostly from the philanthropic community to scale up and to grow and to sort of have what starts to feel like franchising or some kind of empire, um, which we are so not interested in. And the model that we think about that really makes sense is like the way that mycelium grow, um, the way that the forest networks, and we call it translocal organizing. The idea is that we do our work right here, rooted in our local and regional community that's very responsive and accountable to that community. That example, that model, those trainings that we offer spawn similar projects that are also locally and regionally accountable and responsive. And so, to be tangible, what I mean about that, you know, we have this training program. And within the training program, there's an advanced track, a train the trainer track for people who are really ready to uh, take their projects to the next level. Keisha Cameron, outside of Atlanta, Georgia, at High Hog Farm, is one of the people who went through this program. Got inspired to create a similar training program called Ubuntu that works on racial justice, food justice, and helps farmers transition to organic and sustainable practices, which she's now operating on her farm in her community. You know, similarly, um, Finca Conciencia outside of Chicago. Um, this is a group of folks that Viviana, Hereri, and Hazmin that came through train the trainer and our BLFI like next level advanced program and use the business planning ideas that we had to go ahead and start a worker-owned cooperative that's responsive to their local community, which is primarily folks without documents um, and new Americans. And so we're so excited about that. We don't need to own or control that, uh, but we need to be in community and learning from each other and really uplifting each other's work. And. Ultimately, when you think about in some ways, our goal should be to make ourselves obsolete, because once we win, you know, once we have equity in terms of access to land and food and farming and true leadership, we don't necessarily need to be doing the same kind of work. And so we always have our eyes on that. It's not about like consolidating power or control or in some sort of immortality. Um, It's very much about achieving these goals and then making space for whatever needs to come next as far as what the community defines its needs are.
0: Thank you for saying that. It really grounds me to the work that I want to do in the world and the way in which I want to do it. And I'm sure for so many people who are listening to this that are also tussling with these questions of how do we do this work in the world, especially Mm -hmm. with the urgency of the Anthropocene and climate change and just all the pressure that I think so many of us feel who are connected to what's happening Um, I know for myself, I do, I, I, I fall threat to the urgency a lot and sometimes I can forget about deep time or forget about, yeah, harmonious way to move forward. My mind can get trapped in that, that state of scale up and do now and, ah, (laughs) so hearing your words are just like, oh, okay, exhale, there are better ways to do this and we need each other. We need to learn from each other. We need to stay in community and and really listen to the ones that came before us who understood truth and connection and how we can learn and then apply that to this really strange modern time that we're living in now. Yes. That is beautiful. And
1: I love the concept of deep time. I hadn't heard of that before. I,
0: I love that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've had to bring myself back to it a lot um, because like I said, mm-hmm. you know, for so many of us, especially for all the people who I'm sure are sitting with this conversation, our eyes are open. We're awakened to what's happening and it's painful. I think it's can be really scary. So yeah, I just had to keep reminding myself of the deep time that yes, this work is important and it's important to do it now, but the ways in which we do it are also of utmost importance and um, when you were speaking before you had mentioned the people have come through soul fire farms working with undocumented people and it brings up this other topic that i want to speak about because discussions around injustice in the food system just wouldn't be whole without speaking to the exploitation of latinx and migrant farm workers this is a realm you know, we've yet to really delve into on the show, but one that I intend to explore more deeply in the future. On Soulfire's website, it notes that while 85% of the people working the land in the US are Latinx migrant workers, less than 3% of farms are owned and operated by Latinx or Hispanic mm-hmm. folks. So the food system and the backwards policies that shape the system lack humanity on so many levels not only are workers faced with fractional pay and harmful working conditions but the voices of undocumented migrant workers are increasingly silenced and shadowed in this fearful political climate so bringing this up i know we are really barely going to scratch the surface but i want to ask you to say anything you feel called to regarding this topics and perhaps direct us towards organizations doing good work in this area or policy reforms that we can really rally behind.
1: Absolutely. No, thank you for calling that in. Um, Something that I've had my eyes open to is the fact that our food system has, in the United States, has always been entirely dependent on exploited labor in no point in our history have we ever paid fair wages or offered fair working conditions to the people who produce our food, which is profound. I mean, we all are very familiar, I hope, with the history of enslavement, maybe sharecropping and tenant farming. A lot of folks don't know that that was um, followed up with convict leasing, where Black people were criminalized, uh, put in prison, and then sold back to their former masters on plantations and in the mines. Um, But then as the Great Migration picked up, there was a labor vacuum in the South. And rather than really reassessing the economic model, the United States government decided to figure out import strategies. First preying upon Southeast Asian communities, then on Mexican communities, then on Chinese communities, then on Caribbean communities, and essentially bringing people to this country to do work At wages and under conditions that white Americans were not willing to do. I think a really powerful sort of modern anecdote about that is I have a friend who's a professor in the Midwest at an ag college and polled his students and asked them, what wage would it take for you to work in this town's meatpacking plant? And the unanimous answer of those white students was there is no wage at which I would work in those meatpacking plants because they are so grueling and so dangerous and so disgusting that there is no amount of money that you could pay me to work there. And to really think about that, and of course, people are making subminimum wage in those meatpacking plants who are, um, quote unquote, guest workers under the H-2A program, mostly from Mexico. So the fact we've set up a food system that requires people to work in these horrid conditions. And that's what that's what feeds us. is something we really, really need to look at. Um, there is an entirely different set of labor laws for farm workers than there are for other professions. Um, the National Labor Relations Act, which was established in 1935, excludes farm workers and domestic workers from key protections. That has not been changed. That has not been updated. So depending on what state you're in, because some states do have uh, more protections, you may not have overtime pay, the right to unionize, child labor protections, uh, protection from sexual harassment and sexual violence, protection from wage theft, health care. And so this is the reality. And I think that certainly we need to be talking about sovereignty, like certainly we need to be talking about pathways for migrant workers to own land and run their own businesses. But right now, we're not even there yet in the conversation. The conversation is how do folks get paid for their labor and live in buildings that have running water and how do their children go to school? I mean, that's really the level of the conversation. Uh, There was a slavery ring, literal slavery, not even like metaphorical slavery, like people chained and forced to work. That was just broken up in the late 90s by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. which sort of transitions to your question about who's leading the struggle. Certainly the Coalition of Immokalee Workers are doing some incredible, incredible organizing. Uh, We should also support CATA, which is the Farm Workers Support Committee, um, Centro Campesino, uh, Dignity and Power Now, Familias Unidas por la la Justicia, the Farm Workers Association of Florida and and many other um, organizations. And I'm happy to provide a list or like send you some links later, Um, but Organizations that are run by farm workers for farm workers is where we should be um, putting our trust and our resources right now.
0: I'm based out of California, and so much of this state is modern slave labor in the in the farms, in these huge monocropped industrial farms. And I think so many of us, even just driving the five freeway who pass the, whether it's almonds or cattle, and the people that are out there. Working, literally being sprayed from planes. Uh, this mm. poison. It's disgusting how the food system and the bigger system of this country treats anybody, humans, cows, the soil, so disposable. I think speaking about these other organizations that are farm led. Kind of going back to how you were speaking about really working locally in the communities and listening to the people that have been silenced, that are the ones that are actually dealing with the conditions of this horrid system and giving power to the people who are actually doing the work. I remember speaking with Bren Smith, who has set up this... um, 3D ocean farming for a lot of the fishing communities who have mm-hmm. basically, right. you know, lost a lot of their economic stability because fish are going extinct, and how to create jobs and how to really listen to the people that are actually working with the oceans, and how he was explaining that the majority of fishing boats, because they've had to become so expensive and high tech just to even find the last fish the fishermen aren't the ones who own the boats it's people who are so far removed that may have never even stepped foot on a fishing boat and the same with Mm -hmm. a lot of these big farms these corporate farms so many of the people in power have no clue what it's actually like to live to work day in day out or just like how you were talking about the college students there was no amount of money that would pay them to do this work so there's just Uh such this huge disconnect and i i appreciate you you bringing this up and the blatant racism and you know racism in farming isn't restricted to land access and equality or the corporate mega farms but it's also quite apparent in the organic and regenerative farming movements with 95 percent of farm management being white It's no surprise that young Black or Latinx indigenous farmers, they may find themselves in a work environment that carries legacies of racial trauma. Not to mention how many farm incubation projects and jobs for budding organic farmers either require a college degree or are unpaid work trades, significantly limiting who actually has access to them. So I'd really love if you could illuminate further some of the struggles that Black and Latinx folks who are yearning to farm face, and how Soulfire's Black Latinx Farmer Immersion Program arose in response.
1: Yeah, that's that's a beautiful framing um, and a tragic framing, also. You know, I've had folks come to our program and say that they had tried to do the Woof program, you know, worldwide workers on organic farms or do some apprenticeships. And it's not just, you know, subtle legacy of racism stuff. Some of it is really overt. You know, there was this one young man who was picking beans with the white farmer at one of these Woof farms. And the person said, you know, can I ask you, can I ask you an honest question? Um, I was wondering if you have a sense as to why so many black men abandon their children. And it's just like, what? <laughs> on so many levels, what? First of all, that's not even true statistically. There was just some big study done to debunk that myth of the absent black father. Like black fathers are as involved if not more involved than any other race, but also just that audacity, that racist perspective. And then to put that on this person who does not have a car, does not have a way of leaving this place and is now um, stuck in a really uncomfortable, verbally violent environment. So that's, that's what people are confronting. And then, of course, all of the subtle structural stuff that you mentioned. Why do I keep getting denied to this farm incubator program? Or, you know, why is it that I'm on this farm working for free and not really getting the instruction that I thought I signed up for? So that definitely happens in training. And another tragedy that I've only recently become aware of, but is really significant, is there are a number of new Americans from Caribbean countries, especially, uh, who have deep farming backgrounds and are very excited to get into ag in this country and want to attend university. One of the land grant colleges, like the 1890 land grants, which are supposed to be, you know, for these communities. But the geographic location of these universities is so far from the the immigrant community's family center that there's no way for them to attend. You know, they need to be living with their family members in order to afford survival, they need to be taking care of elders. And so it's just not possible. And so people end up choosing different career paths. And that's, you know, folks have been telling me, what if we had satellite sites for these universities in the communities where black and brown people actually live, and we could, you know, pay current black and brown farmers as adjunct faculty at these universities to do these remote programs and, and really expand the land grant system to provide education right where people are. So that's certainly one barrier is training, but I would say even more significant is access to credit capital and land. Black folks, brown folks, we're not inheriting land and land is hella expensive. Property taxes are so expensive. And how do you surmount that barrier um, in order to really get started? Because you know you can't go into some crazy debt because farming isn't going to pay it off. Um, And right now the The credit programs and the grant programs are very limited. And as you mentioned earlier, are still skewed towards supporting white farmers and corporate farmers and large scale farmers. And there's a lot of barriers to accessing um, those programs for black and brown folks who are just starting out.
0: It's heartening to remember that economic models that are not purely individualistic or capitalistic do exist, like indigenous gift economies and cooperatives or the Ujame principle that Soul Fire embodies. And I'd like to hear more about some of the alternative ways of economy that have been working for you and your community and how they can provide a greater network of support for community members in need.
1: Yeah, definitely. So Ujamaa is a Kwanzaa principle. It's a Kiswahili word that loosely means cooperative economics. It's this idea that rather than have an exploitative relationship between producer and consumer, where you're both just trying to get as much as you can at the expense of the other, um, that you think about a cooperative and mutually uplifting relationship. And the way that we've tried to implement this principle um, in part is through our Ujamaa farm share. Um, It is a weekly doorstep delivery of a box of fresh farm-grown vegetables between June and November. And we focus on communities under food apartheid, um, food apartheid being that system of segregation that relegates some people to food opulence and others to food scarcity. Um, So these folks in these neighborhoods, you know, don't have access to farmers markets and grocery stores and whole foods or anything like that. And so a lot of times the box of vegetables is really that only the only fresh option for them. And people can pay on a sliding scale, whatever they can afford. They can also use government benefits like EBT or the WIC, Farmers Market Program. And the way that we make this still financially viable for us as farmers is some people who have more resources pay higher on the sliding scale, effectively subsidizing uh, the food that their neighbors receive. And additionally, we do some grassroots fundraising uh, for what we call our solidarity share program. And the solidarity shares are specifically for refugees, immigrants, and people impacted by incarceration. And these are no-cost shares that are paid for entirely by people's neighbors. And it's important to us to do it this way. Uh, We certainly could write grants and you know, try to fundraise in a philanthropic model for the program, but we're trying to show that a farm can be economically viable, um, relying on its sales and relying on its community, uh, because there it's a struggle, you know, to make it as a small scale farmer. And it would be disingenuous to be training people to go into farming without being able to demonstrate a model of financial sustainability. Like you're not going to get rich off of farming, but you can, you know, take care of your family and take care of your basic needs and also be in integrity in terms of um, sharing what you have with your community and not only catering to these really upscale markets.
0: That is something I have sat with a long time in question and I actually want to talk a bit more about it because you know we've spoken a lot together about the challenges of even acquiring land in the first place as a black or brown farmer and then once you by whatever means can acquire the land and farm that it isn't something that's actually valued in our culture uh real fresh organic food just like so many other things whether it's you know I mean it's it's a kind of amazing when I think about how many things are not valued that are actually what give us life whether that's food even trees for oxygen but what is valued are these things that are completely unnecessary and actually destructive to the earth and to our connection with each other and the this planet. And so, not to get too down this tornado of existential questioning, but I sit with this, you know, how can we feed a economic model that actually does value farmers, does value the food that is produced by farmers without either like you said, receiving grants from foundations and doing all of the legwork of the philanthropic nonprofit model or just selling to whole foods or even um, creating actual products from the produce that is kind of turned into a fancier mm-hmm. product right, like value add value exactly mm-hmm. value added because even i mean honestly I'm sure that Whole Foods gouges the organic produce farmers that they sell their kale and so on and so forth. And so there is this um, this system is set up to not value the people that are actually creating the life-sustaining food and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I know you ha- were touching on it, but if there's any other threads you can pull on this topic to show us more of how you're doing it or other models that you really resonate with and maybe this is a really far out question but how do you see this being a better way forward being able to topple over the old system into a way that this could be the new norm like you said like making um some of these uh, some of the work that you do even obsolete because it just is the way that life is Right? Wouldn't that be sweet? Wakanda forever. Um,
1: You know, I'm not an economist, and so I'm probably not the best person to answer this question, but I do know that, you know, in the past, there was more support from the federal government for small farmers, and the whole big, get big, get out, you know, transformation that happened between the 60s and the 80s really shifted the way the subsidies worked. Um, So right now, it's not so much that wheat is inherently cheap or corn syrup is inherently cheap. It's just that there's a whole lot of money flowing in for those big commodity crops that artificially depresses the price. Um, agriculture is not a free market beast um, in the United States. And so we could really play with that. You know, Costa Rica pays its farmers for providing environmental services such as protecting pollinator habitats and supporting the recharge of aquifers. And so what if we thought about restructuring the way that huge farm bill works and what it subsidizes? We do have small programs for conservation. We have EQUIP and the Conservation Stewardship Program and so on. And so it's not that that doesn't exist, but it's very underfunded. It's a small slice of the pie. And we could completely invert it. You know, we could make those commodity crop subsidies a small piece of the pie and then really expand what farmers get for doing crop rotation, pollinator protection, erosion control, living buffers, you know, all of these practices, um, if you think about it, really are for public benefit. They're for the public trust and for the future. So why not have our public dollar pay farmers to do those things as their value-added product in addition to selling lettuce? Um, And so I think that part of the ultimate answer really has to do with the way that society is regulating and subsidizing farming. Um, But that's really as far as my limited um, economic understanding goes.
0: (laughs) Well, I love being able to flip the subsidies (laughs) on its head and instead (laughs) of subsidizing high fructose corn syrup and uh, things that are really unhealthy for all living creatures, but instead subsidize. Farmers to create these buffer zones to protect pollinators. That's brilliant, and it, and it is beneficial to everyone to be able to steward land in that way. I'm sure it even affects the water that runs through the farms. Um, you know, I think about, yeah. I'm. I, it's so it's so funny. Just it's not funny. Ed. It's disturbing, honestly, in California how the state wants to raise Shasta Dam yet again, um, which would wipe out the salmon, wipe out the Winnem Wintu's cultural sacred sites just to funnel more water through the Delta tunnels to feed the Central Valley. Instead of actually looking at the Central Valley that's been completely wiped out of all of their topsoil, laser leveled, uh, you know, Mm. the water runoff goes into these cemented, quote-unquote rivers or creeks and what if we instead of taking the money to do this massive dam project what if we took the money to pay you know people and well I mean the farmers that's a whole other story because it's probably mostly corporate farms but actually use that money to regenerate this land in a way that Mm -hmm. was regenerative to people that work on this land and and I think about that all the time like where money goes and how much money is actually being spent in our government on really strange programs instead of actually using the money for ways that we know will protect and clean water and land and is healthier for the people. It's just mind-boggling and so I think these other ways of supporting people that you've mentioned, it's such a clear way forward and I think if enough of us awaken to these ideas and get on board it's not unsurmountable. Uh, it just takes organization and I think faith that uh, we can band together and, and do this. So <laughs> thank you. I, I, even though I know you say you're not an economist, it's, these ideas are potent. And, um, and I think more and more of us need to understand that there's already programs in place that are regenerative. And how we can get behind those. That,
1: yeah, my yeah. friends, uh, my good friends, um, Tegan Engel, ha- actually had a, a cool idea for flipping the script, like you mentioned. Because right now you have to get certified, right, to be organic, mm-hmm. to use that label. But what if you had to get certified to use pesticides and mm-hmm. synthetic fertilizers? And you had to really justify why that was necessary and... Submit to that scrutiny and monitoring to make sure that you're not doing and uh, you know undue damage to the environment. And have the status quo be that you would have a chemical free farm. And so I think it's one one thing I love about that is it really encourages us to think outside the box and question our presuppositions about the way the system works. It doesn't have to keep working like that.
0: I read that Soul Fire Farm has sister farms in Haiti and Puerto Rico, and. I was both fascinated and unnerved when listening to your speech at the 2017 Holyoke Food Justice Conference, where you brought up the sector of the Farm Bill regarding food aid and how the U.S. government strategically uses such neocolonial forces to rupture local food economies. So kind of getting back into these systems that need to be taken down. Could you explain what ensued in Haiti's rice economy following the 2010 earthquake and what resistance has been transpiring from the Haitian peasant movement?
1: Sure, um, absolutely. So most of my knowledge of what's going on in Haiti is very personal. Again, I'm not a movement expert, but my mother is from Haiti. And since 2010, I've been going there um, to Leogan area where the was the epicenter of the earthquake with a group called Haiti Resurrect, which is mostly Haitian, American, Caribbean, Black uh, folks doing solidarity work with this community. And so what I learned from them is that, you know, after the 2010 earthquake, the U.S. did what it often does now in so-called developing countries, which is it sent food aid. And under the Farm Bill, we have a policy called Tide Aid that says that anytime we give food aid internationally, it has to be grown by U.S. farmers and packaged and shipped by U.S. corporations. And this policy, while it sounds benign, is actually sort of brilliant in its evilness uh, because it makes imperialism look like philanthropy. They timed the donation of the rice to the moment when the harvest was ready in Aitse. And as you can imagine, if you flood a community with free rice at the time that farmers are trying to sell their rice, um, the results are devastating because that economy is then undermined. Uh, farmers go out of business. It forces migration to the urban areas. It forces desperation. People start working more for the US companies like United Fruit and Disney, uh, t-shirt factories, because there's not reserves, there's not savings. And Monsanto has even tried to wipe out the indigenous seed of Aitzi by, again, giving donations of their hybrid seed to the farmers and along with free chemicals at first. But after a couple of years of that, when the native seed supply is depleted, those farmers then become dependent on Monsanto. So the then president of Haiti, you know, asked for the donations to be turned around. They still came in with the donations and then the farmers in the Haitian peasant movement actually burned the seed in an act of resistance, um, saying, we want our seed sovereignty, we want want our food sovereignty, we don't want these donations. We would rather have the international support actually go to Haitian farmers to grow food for our own community in these times of need, uh, but not to supplant our local economy. So they are just, they're powerful. And something I love about working with the farmers in Haiti, it's not just demonstrations and chanting and burning stuff. I mean, they are doing the on the ground organizing. They have their own seed keepers exchange. They are irrigating one another's farms and setting up compost projects and planting trees on the degraded hillsides. Like they are doing that hands-on grassroots work. Um, And these protests are an outward expression of their political priorities um, that are very much rooted in knowing their land and knowing their community.
0: Oh we some many of us have so much to learn from these courageous people who are taking their power back and mm-hmm. not feeling the smallness that these big corporations try to just cover people up with and I think when we hear stories about people in Haiti or in countries that are so much less privileged than the United States, I think it's can be this really beautiful wake-up call to so many of us here that shows us look at these incredible people that are dealing with disasters and extreme poverty and lack of access to so many just basic human needs. And They are powerful, and they're doing it. And I think it also um, kind of shatters this idea of the United States and the, quote, aid that's sent all over the world and how we can Mm. start to understand how it's disrupting so many countries globally. And um, it's it's a wormhole to jump into um, Mm -hmm. how the United States continues to – force their imperialistic colonial ideals and just so oh my goodness the United States is has not stopped this forceful grip on um, so many people so anyways but I'm really I want to open up the floor at this point as you've just shared so much in this last hour with us but I would love to hear about your new book Farming While Black, Soul Fire's Definitive Guide to Liberation on Land, which is going to be released this fall. So please, if you would, share with us um, the inspiration for this book, your process while working through it, and anything else that you'd like us to know about this body of work that you'll be releasing soon. Well, thank
1: you. You know, it really feels like such a labor of love and an important child essentially to bring into the world. So the idea of the book Farming Well Black is to take all of this curriculum that we've built over the years for our Black Latinx farmers immersion training, um, the content of our talks and lectures and research, and as well as the farming practices that we've honed over the years, and put them into almost an encyclopedic manual for reclaiming our right to dignity and belonging on lands. It's both practical and historical and poetic It's pretty long, it's got beautiful photographs, but just some examples of the types of things that you can find in the book are ideas for accessing land when you don't have a lot of resources, how you can leverage certain networks and programs um, to get that resource that you need, uh, setting up your own cooperative credit entities to support one another in initial costs, organizing communal labor work parties, getting in touch with the spirits of the lands and making sure that you have their consent and support so things go well. So there's that foundational stuff. And then it moves into how have our ancestors tended the land, selected their seed, cared for their crops? How have they turned those harvests into preserved foods and cooked foods? And with every single suggestion that we offer about how to do the thing, we're also uplifting that ancestral root. So when we talk about raised beds, we're talking about the Avambo people in Central Africa. When we talk about terraces, we're talking about fenyaju practices in Kenya, right? And and agroforestry, we refer to the Haden Laku of Haiti, which is the Haitian agroforest. So all of these practices um, are rooted in where they came from, which is so, so important because, you know, in the so-called permaculture movement, a lot of times these very, ways of knowing land are divorced from their context, repackaged, rebranded, and really honestly used to profit college educated white folks in offering these permaculture certifications. And that's just that's just not ethical and it's also misleading. Um, so this was the book that I needed when I was 16 years old and starting to farm and going to these farming conferences, looking at the tables and seeing that everything was written by Elliot Coleman or the Nearing's you know, or John Jevons, I really needed to see that my people were reflected in this sustainable agricultural tradition, um, which we are. And so I hope that this will be a gift to my contemporaries and to future generations to help us uh, reclaim that proud place in the legacy of regenerative farming.
0: I cannot wait for this book to come out and just sit with every page. And thank you so much for debunking the myths of permaculture and all of these well-meaning perhaps ways of teaching and how they're not really getting to the root of how to move forward in the way that we need to right now and I really appreciate all of your tireless work because I can only imagine how much you dedicate your life force and your energy to all the different pieces of this very full pie that you work with from farming and food and intersectionality and ancestry and seed and soil and on and on and on it's just so inspiring to see and to learn about you and your devotion so I Appreciate you. I'm so grateful for you coming on the show today. I'm sure everybody listening has many, many bits and pieces that they want to explore more from this seed of a conversation. So I hope that we meet sometime in the future in person and keep the conversation growing. Ashe, absolutely. And thank you for your really thoughtful Questions.
1: It's such a blessing to, you know, be in conversation with someone who clearly has the reverence for Earth and for justice that uh, we do here at Soulfire Farm. So, thank you for that commitment. Thank
0: you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was Hannah Shin with Night Glide. I'd like to thank our incredible team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, our research director, Madison Mogolski, and media director, Molly Lebov. Head over to the website to check out our entire archive of podcasts. And while you're there, you can look into our other projects, including our One Million Redwoods project, the Tongass National Forest campaign, and our new online education platform, launching May 1. Thanks so much, and until next time.